0: We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to today's episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood host, Dr. Jim. And with me, I have...
1: LB. I don't know about all that other stuff. I'm just LB.
0: Hello, Just LB. This is <laughs> the part you? where you say hello.
1: Yeah, that was strategic pause. It's okay.
0: Ruining my flow, dude. You're ruining. What kind of amateur hour are we running over here? We're gonna be digging into a pretty heavy topic, which is uh, driving business results with a DEI focus. And with us today is a pretty heavy hitter, in my opinion. And rather than me putting words in her mouth, I'll let her go ahead and uh, and introduce herself.
2: Thanks, Jim. So I'm Kat, and I don't know that I would go with heavy hitter, but I do appreciate that. I appreciate you guys letting me come in here. So my background, just to give you guys an an overview of those of you that don't know me, which is probably most of you watching this. So I'm a regional director with Infinity Consulting. We're a national staffing and consulting firm, and Jim and I go pretty far back in the staffing and consulting world, back to when I was probably just a a little recruiter uh, at the bottom of the totem pole. But now I oversee a region, run a pretty good-sized team, and uh, I love every second of it.
0: I don't know if I would go lowly recruiter because I think when you and I were on the same team, we were at the same level.
2: But one of us was better than the other.
0: That was you, clearly. That was you, clearly. the, uh, what, what's your big title? Our regional head of it, all things. It's so
2: fancy. Yes, regional director of all things. <laughs> See,
0: I told you we're in for a heavy hitter. This is going to be a great show. I think when when cat and I were on the same team, we we're at the same level. A cat had primarily been in the Dallas area, and you'd spent a, a couple of weeks in Chicago at our corporate office, and. Uh, I remember you being really talented and it's, I've been watching your career, not like a, a creeper or anything, but it's been an interesting career to watch and you've done a lot of great things. So the the point of this story is to tap into a little bit of your backstory or a little bit of your history and how that shaped your go forward direction and not to like uh, ruin the ending of the, of the story, but how you got to the point where you've built one of the strongest organizations within your company with a DEI focus in mind. So it's going to be a great story to talk about and looking forward to all the twists and turns and the hair-raising thrills and spills. Lawrence, this is where you use your big voice things and throw that in there.
1: All right. I'll be sure to do.
0: That was an underwhelming response. Come on. You got to help me out here. (laughs) Insert sound
1: effects. (laughs) He didn't say to do that.
0: We know where you are. So let's pick it up from the beginning. So tell us a little bit about how you came to be who you are.
2: That's a loaded question. Many hours of therapy, right? Help you come to that realization, I think. But my journey is an interesting one, right? So I grew up playing golf competitively. I've been a competitive athletes, probably the age of about six. And that drives a lot of what I do in our business gym and the recruiting and staffing and sales in general. Competitiveness is one of the things that we really look at when we're looking for talent. And we'll definitely tap into that a little bit later. For me, when I stopped playing golf, I ended up graduating from Baylor, business degree at Baylor and worked in real estate. And I came to this realization that I didn't really want to work in real estate. I needed to find something else. And the recruiting industry doesn't, you don't find it, it finds you, I think is the way to think about that. So I i ended up getting a job as a recruiter and started out there in that industry, probably 20, 2011, I think. So it's, yeah. it's been a good amount of years now. And that's kind of how I came into my role here just moving up through the ranks, there's been a lot of challenges and there's been a lot of things to overcome. When I was 14 years old, actually, I came out as lesbian to my parents. And at 14, that's a really big conversation to have. And then you carry that all through high school in a small town. And then you go to Baylor and you graduate from Baylor and uh, to live authentically at Baylor in that way was for me, it, it wasn't that bad, but a lot of people didn't have it so well. And then you carry that into a career and you carry it with you everywhere. And, and you realize in a way you're a minority, but it, it's not in a, a visual way. It's uh, it's like a, a secret minority. And, and I think that's influenced a lot of the the decisions that I've made with how I want to approach my career, how I want to lead people, how I want to hire people. There's a lot more than than meets the surface, I think. That that story from that age to now, it's something that I'm grateful for my outcomes, but there are so many people that are way less fortunate than myself and don't have the support system that I had. Hopefully, I'll find a way to reach more of them and help them. I,
0: I appreciate you walking us through the Cliff Notes version of that story. And I think it's an important story to tell. It ties directly into one of the big things that we want to impact with the show is how do you navigate all of these challenges, be authentic and normalize all of these conversations that are quote unquote, I don't know, not appropriate or whatever for for the world of work, which I think is just... BS. Like anything that makes anybody uncomfortable is taboo and inappropriate for work. And I think that's that sort of crap, but I want to wind this back and, and lay a little context on it too, because things aren't great now, but when you think back to when you actually came out, that was a, that was still an era where there's a level of acceptance now that didn't exist back then. And I'm not talking like we, we grew up in the fifties, but there was still all of that stuff and when you factor that into the age that you came out geographically wh- where you were and then experiencing that in Baylor, that had to be particularly tough to navigate. So what, what did you learn from that experience and, and how did you navigate through all of that turmoil successfully?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. But you're right. We're not living in the 50s. But this was about 20 years ago and it's interesting. I love to see how far we've come, but sometimes it's even uh, more interesting for me to think back to what it really was like then. And I think that there was this level of, I guess I had a level of naiveness, right? If that's even a word at this point, we're going to make it one right now. When you're 14 and you feel something so strongly, you know it to be, you know it to be true. One of the biggest challenges though, was simply my age. If I would have been a 22-year-old having that conversation, it's perceived a little bit differently right, than coming from a a 14-year-old. And I think that was one of the biggest challenges because at that age, most people tend to brush it off as a, a phase or some type of acting out. It's a reaction to something. It's not uh, what you internally feel. It's more reactionary than that. And But you look at today's society and kids that are eight, nine, 10 years old, able to speak their truth. So we do have to give that a grain of salt and and give it some footing, if you will, no matter the age. But for me, that was one of the biggest challenges. The other thing was, but seen as the secret. And I grew up in Waco. I try not to tell people this but I am from Waco. I'm from just outside of Waco. In the town that I lived in and where I went to school, everybody knew everybody. I only graduated with a high school class of 117, I think. And we all knew each other. All the parents knew each other. Everyone's pets knew their each other. It was just that connected. So you don't keep a secret like that for long. And for me, the the bigger challenge was how are all these people going to process it when- they aren't having the same level of conversation that I was having with my parents and my family. They're going to hear of these things from people and what are they going to think? And that's something that I have learned now in, in the years that you really can't worry about that. You can't worry about what other people think. I know that sounds cliche, but... It's one of the biggest takeaways because it will burden you. And that's a really heavy burden to to carry.
1: Kat, so my question for you is, is that what was the impact of when you came out with your family? How did that conversation go? And in the years following that, how did that look?
2: Yeah. So this is where my mother will probably kill me if she ever sees this or she'll just never show my dad. I think that's the key thing here. Because I came out to my mom first. My mom and I are very close. She is, she's basically like a best friend and she took it really well. Her initial reaction and her first thought out loud to me was she doesn't want my life to be harder than it has to be. So you have this, you obviously want the best for your kids. And then you have this additional thing on top of all the other struggles in life that a a child will naturally encounter. And she saw it as just one other thing that could make my life hard. When I told her, I said, listen, everyone's life is hard. Everyone has a battle. Everyone has something they have to overcome. So it went really well with her. Here's where the catch is, is that I made her promise not to tell my dad. And now that I am married, and this is full circle, I'm like, Oh my gosh, what if a future child of mine would were to ask me to do that right in a marriage? I don't know what I would do. I just, I don't know. It'd be an in the moment decision, but she, she kept that promise for months and she let me live my truth with her. And with some of my friends for months. And then it, there did come a time where she was like, Hey, you have to tell him. And my dad and I didn't have a really close relationship for a lot of reasons, but that time we just weren't close. And I was terrified. And I think the fear that I felt is what sits with me the most, because I had no actual reason to be terrified. I just was, but there are a lot of children out there that have literal reasons to be terrified. And I feel for them. So when I did finally tell my dad, he's a man of very few words. And this is what he says to me. He says, huh, guess I'm going to have to get used to more women around here. And then he walked off into the backyard to go finish grilling a steak or something. That was his reaction. That was it. And I'm like, so are we good? And he was like, yeah. Are you, how do you want your steak? You want it medium rare, medium? And he just like moves on. It was like a very traditional male conversation, if you will, when you think about it from that perspective. But so they took it well and they supported me through everything, but there was a ripple effect to all of that because your family is not just your parents. Your family goes well beyond that. And in my mother and my father supporting me unconditionally, it did put them at odds with their parents who are of a different, way different generation, raised differently. They live in very small towns, way less exposure to something more diverse like that. So that has been the ripple effect that I think has stayed with us is it did put a strain on those relationships. But with my immediate family, they were, their reaction was perfect. They were as welcoming as they could be.
0: The other part with your dad's reaction, that's the ultimate (laughs) Texas reaction too. Right. You want your steak. So that's awesome to hear that at least in your immediate family, that reaction was like that because just to your point, a lot of people, when they go through the process of coming out or or telling their family, there's all sorts of stories about people getting disowned and all that sort of stuff. You look at all of that experience before you got to Baylor, that certainly had an impact to you. And then you're at Baylor, which... Yeah, I'm not overly familiar with it, but I know that it's a pretty conservative leading school, and and I'm tiptoeing around the the details of it. How did you navigate that environment? There are a lot of schools that are super super conservative, and to the point where they don't even allow you to drink on campus. So I don't know if Baylor's that kind of school, but oh. Okay, so let's go there. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's hear about this story. This is uh, this is going to be interesting.
2: Baylor is an interesting place, right? So it's a Southern Baptist school. It's a private university, right? Southern Baptist through and through. Although, if you you know watch anything to do with the news regarding Texas or NCAA athletics, et cetera, you are familiar with Baylor and its numerous scandals yep. over the years. you have to take all that with a grain of salt. But yeah, when I was at Baylor, so. There was no tailgating allowed at football games, not allowed whatsoever. It actually became legal, quote unquote, my last year there, my very last semester, which was interesting. And for me, I approached it, I guess I approached it in two different mindsets. There was a part of my life at Baylor where I could be myself. I had my group of friends. I lived off campus. So I wasn't in campus housing. Don't tell Baylor. But I lived off campus, had my group of friends, supportive friends, everything like that. But what was tough was the other part of that life where I'm on campus, I'm in class, I'm having to interact with these people that I don't know as well. And I'm at Baylor. And so you make this assumption that everyone around you is more religious than you is going to look down upon that. So that that's where I had to tread carefully, but there came a point after my, so I did summer semester. And then after my freshman year where I said, Hey, like you can't lead a double life because it's stressing. It weighs on you. I just decided to to be me very simple. And I'm not talking about running around campus wrapped in rainbow flags. That's not me, but just being authentically myself in conversations in class and stuff like that. I would get messages from people on Facebook, which was really the only social media at the time. And I would get messages from strangers. Hey, what you're doing like is so great to see, like seeing someone like you that's out and this and that and the other but you need to be careful. Like, because technically Baylor could have kicked me out with no rhyme or reason. They could have expelled me just for being gay. And I would get a lot of those messages from people that were supportive, but at the same time, they were fearful for me, which was crazy, but it was a wild experience, but really was, but I guess I wouldn't change it. It It shaped me into who
0: I am. You really navigated a tightrope there. I think I would have given myself an ulcer. I don't know how you pulled that off, but hats off to you. You've, you navigated the Baylor environment. So when you look at all of that experience from the time you were growing up and then getting through college, how did it shape your interpersonal style in general
2: I I would be lying to you guys, right? If I said that once I got through Baylor, that it got easier because it didn't. And in fact, actually it got harder. And and I'll give you an example how, and this is something I I recently actually told this story to my current CEO, Doug, and he was beside himself. And I could see the, the look in his eyes. He genuinely just felt awful for me. And he kept apologizing. And I'm like, this is not your, it's not your thing to apologize for. But so when I started out in the professional world and I I moved from real estate into staffing, in the staffing world, you're working with candidates that you don't know. You're also working with companies that you don't know. And on the sales side, a big part of my role at just getting into sales, getting into a BDM position was Meeting with clients, getting to know them, building relationships, doing all these things. And that's what I really love. I love sitting down with someone that I know nothing about and having a conversation with them. But there were times where you're sitting with a client or a potential client, I should say, and they start sharing with you about their family. And maybe he says something about his wife or his kids. And then you get the question of, do you have a husband? And Or do you have a boyfriend? And those are the moments that were the most difficult for me because you have to make this really fast choice in your mind of, am I going to live authentically or am I not? Right. And most of the time I was not living authentically. Okay. I'll be very honest. I was terrified. I would say, no, I'm not dating anyone or no, I'm not married. And so I'm not lying, but I'm also not necessarily living authentically. And there was a client that I became pretty close with. And once I was authentic with him, once I, I finally corrected him and said, hey, I, I don't have a boyfriend. I actually have a girlfriend. He was no longer a client. And in that moment, I realized, okay, this is not as easy to navigate as I thought that it might be. If I had some other profession that didn't involve getting to such intimate levels with people as you're doing business with them, maybe this wouldn't be an issue. And I thought about going to law school in that moment and actually took the LSAT. Like I was fully committed. And, and I said, no, this is, I'm going to stay and, and I'm going to see this through. And it was, that was really tough. But now I, I've realized that if someone's not going to work with me or do business with me purely because of who I am married to, then I don't want to do business with them. There's so many other people out there in the world, but 100%. I was young. And yeah, that was an eye opening moment for me because I, and it wasn't one of those direct things where he says, Oh, I no longer want to work with you. It was one of those moments where he plays it off in the moment. And then that project that we were supposed to follow up on a week later and sync up on, the sync didn't happen. And then the phone calls aren't returned, the emails aren't returned. And it's just one of those things where you're like, what do you do?
0: I I, want to lay this little bit of context for the audience. So Kat and I were both in IT staffing. Kat is still in IT staffing. In that environment, you were between a rock and a hard place because you have a decision to make on what are you going to say in terms of relationship status and any other status that comes up. But If you say one thing like, hey, I'm single, I know that there is a high creep factor among certain clients or or certain uh, potential clients where they sniff out that you're single and you get all sorts of other unwanted attention. So you're as a young 20 something new in your career, that's tough to navigate. Which do I pick? Because either one is going to have some unsavory consequences that I have to deal with. I don't want to undersell that situation. It's not as easy yeah. as me coming out to somebody else and saying, I'm, I'm gay or whatever I might be. It's easier to navigate it if I'm a guy. You're dealing yeah. with a double barrel <laughs> of bad consequences. So I just wanted to call that out because it's not cut and dry as if if you were another gender.
1: That's true. Yeah. I was just thinking through it as you were saying that and I it's I, I appreciate the authenticity and the question that I had was going to be a retrospect how do you think that has shaped you today in terms of that challenge to your authenticity when you made the decision to say this is who I am that's the question but the other side of me is that I 100% agree with you which I jumped into your to your statement that you were making uh, and I blurted out 100% because I am 100% with you that when folks, if, if they're not willing to accept who you are, right, and I share this oftentimes with uh, younger folks that are, you know, entering into their careers in, a, in an environment where you can't be your authentic self, it's just not the place for you. And it's a slow death when you make the decision to do that.
2: I still have to make those decisions today. So fast forward 10, 12 years, I still have to make them. And in fact, I'll give you an example where I didn't live authentically. And this was recent. This was actually last month. Okay. And I tell this story because I want everyone to be able to see that it's just not, it's not cut and dry. It's not, okay, I'm out. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore. This is a choice that sometimes comes up on a a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And a part of it I think is on me, right? If I'm being candid where I'm making my own assumptions about my audience. And I'm, I'm assuming that because of something they've said or something that they're a part of or something that they've done, I'm assuming what their response or reaction is going to be to me. And that's on me. And that's probably not a great thing to do. But the example is this, I, I I was playing golf here in Dallas and I I got paired with a lady that I didn't know. She was a member of my country club, didn't know her for some meeting her. And we're on the first tee box. And she tells me we're talking about work. and, And she tells me that she is, she basically works for a mega church here in Texas. And we have a lot of mega churches and they're, they're huge, literally hence the name. So She tells me that she works for this church and that she she works there and then she volunteers there and it's a Baptist church. If it were a Methodist church, I'd like cheers our beer and then we'd move on about our day, but it was a Baptist church. So I have this in my mind and we get up maybe two, three holes ahead and she asks me and she says, she says, are you married? And I say, yeah, I'm married. I had a ring on. And, And then she says, what does your husband do? And In that moment, that's where you have that internal panic. And I'm like, do I correct her? Do I not? Right. And I did not correct her. And I told her what my wife does for a living. And so now that was on hole three golf is 18 holes folks. So throughout the rest of this round, she is asking me about my husband and my husband, this, and my husband, that. And I texted my wife because we have this thing. She knows that this happens. And I always text her when I'm not living authentically. It's, like my, it helps me with my guilt, but it's also like an accountability piece. I, I want her to know and we, we help each other with that. And so I texted her and I was like, oh, I'm not living authentically today. This lady from the church is asking me all these questions about my husband. And I just don't have the heart to break it to her that I am gay. And my wife laughs it off and she's it's okay, sweetie, you're doing whatever you can. These situations never go away Every time I have a new client, eventually I'm coming out again. Every time I meet a new friend, eventually I'm coming out again. LB, I came out to you. It's just like this never-ending thing. So living authentically is tough unless you don't care about any of the consequences. And I'm not at that point where I can say I don't care at all. There's still a little percentage there.
1: It's a powerful statement and, and, and uh, I think a great story to share And thank you for doing so. Because I think that oftentimes people don't necessarily understand that we are oftentimes having to relive these different experiences. And the whole, like one of my favorites is things have changed. This is the year 2022. And we even when we were talking about it before the show actually started, we were talking about this is not the 1950s. And in my head, I'm like, it depends on who you're talking to, whether whether or not it's still the 1950s. And so you've really for me, underscored that, right? Like you explaining and sharing with us that you have to pretty much reset authenticity every time you're coming into a a new environment or a new engagement is something that you have to do. So I think it's just powerful to to tease that out so that people really understand that.
2: It's part of our society. I I look at it from both sides. I'm making a judgment call on her based on something that she's told me. But she's ultimately doing the same. She's just making the assumption that because I'm a female, I have a husband. And uh, I think that's something within society that's going to be very difficult to remove from who we are and our, our culture as a whole. And that's part of, for me, it's like an internal checks and balance. When I'm speaking with people, I try to be overly conscious of not making those bias assumptions, if you will, making no assumptions. So it, but it's tough. We're all human and we all do it at some point.
1: And so how does being cat give way to your leadership and the impact that the, that you've had in terms of building?
2: I think part of it, I take th- this part of me, this, like the story I just told you where I chose not to be authentic. I chose to withhold, et cetera, for fear of repercussion. So I almost try and create an environment where nobody else has to feel that, right? Nobody else has to go, oh, should I be myself or should I not be myself? Which version of me should I be today? And for me, that's huge. And I honestly, I I didn't even really realize that's what I was working to build. It was more like a subconscious thing that I had been doing for years. And I was in an internal interview probably a couple of months ago. And one of my senior employees that, that's on my team, that she's a part of the interview process, she gets asked this question, right? What's the best part about the culture at ICS in Dallas? And she answers basically like that. She says, I don't have to worry about, can I be myself or can I not? I don't have to wake up every day and pretend to be someone else so that I can go to work. And I'm sitting in this interview and I probably had my mouth open and the candidate, they're all probably looking at me like, what's wrong with her? But I'm going, holy shit. That's what it is. Like she just put into words what I have been subconsciously doing and trying to do without being to really able to like quantify it or qualify it. I wasn't able to describe it. And she just sits there and and says, yeah, this is our culture and this is what it is. And she probably doesn't even know it. She may watch this and and she'll learn from this interview. That was one of the most like fulfilling and rewarding moments for me. I just, it, it really stood out. So I think that's a big part of it is giving my team and everyone that I work with internally, not even just my branch, our other 11 branches that we have, anyone I interface with, giving them the ability to just be themselves.
0: I I think that's a fantastic sort of outcome that your team member has where they're verbalizing what you've created. When LB and I talk about our time coming together, one of the things that he was big into before it was even a thing was building a team that looks like the communities that you serve. We had a pretty high performing group and we look like the communities that we serve. So when you spin that back to how you've built your team intentionally or unintentionally, what have you seen in terms of impact when it comes to attracting talent internally, developing talent, getting that talent to stick? And and that sticking point or that sticking question is particularly important because in staffing, you're talking about an industry that typically has 50, 60, 70% turnover year over year. So I want to wind that back to when you've created your team with these particular things in mind. What's been the end-to-end impact in terms of business results?
2: Staffing has such a, a high turnover, right? Sales has high turnover in general, and then staffing's oh, I see you, sales. I'm gonna one up you, basically. It's a, such a high turnover industry and for a lot of reasons. But I, I think back to and now I remember this pretty clearly because it was years ago and. I was looking around the floor and we had an interview with uh, a a black gentleman that came in and I loved him to death. The interview was great. He and I were laughing. Everyone else had met with him, loved him. And I asked him, I said, Hey, do you want to come back and see the floor? And we're standing there and I'm introducing him to people and showing him around and stuff like that. And everything seemed so great. And uh, when we ended up making him an offer, He did not accept. And I was really surprised and he gave his reasons why. And and I could tell that it wasn't the real reason. It was one of those things where he wasn't living authentically. And uh, unfortunately, I never got to talk to him about the real reason, but it really made me think. And I remember standing there when we were looking at the floor, looking at our whole team. And I remember thinking, he probably doesn't see a lot of himself here. He's underrepresented. You're looking around and you're going, not a lot of these people look like me. And you start to do exactly what I did with the lady uh, that works at the church. You go, well, she works at a church. She probably wouldn't understand. And I'm. it was in that moment where I realized like, we have a lot of diversity. We have people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different religions. You name it, different stories. But in the the two minutes that I visually had to sell that to him, I did a really poor job. He was not represented. And uh, ever since that moment, it goes back to to lb what we talked about a, a little bit earlier, I'm diverse in a way that people can't visually see, right? You can't look at me and go, "Oh, there's a, there goes that lesbian," unless you know that I'm gay, or you could make an assumption depending on what I'm wearing. But that's a different story. It's one of those things. I'm going, "Well, how do we make sure people understand how diverse our group really is and how inclusive it really is?" And the inclusivity piece was what's really important. So that was an eye-opening moment for me. And ever since that happened years and years ago. It's been a really big focus for us and for me, just in general, to make sure that when people come in to interview, they hear our stories. They don't just see us as, oh, this is that salesperson that's interviewing me, or this is that recruiter that's interviewing me. They get like the full person, the full picture, the full story.
1: When I go through the process of, of coaching folks about going into a newer environment, I think everyone has you know, heard of Glassdoor or mm-hmm. some other similar sort of way to learn about the culture that to Kat's point really is that the, the reputation, I like guess the old adage precedes you. And some of the ways of what she was saying of making, having that epiphany and saying, okay, but it's the story. I think she's spot on that what you're saying, that story oftentimes occurs long before the person actually sits down in the uh, seat or in front of the camera these days. And when an interview starts, that they have a little bit of that. And I think the authenticity of what it looks like in in the selection process, the folks that they may engage with will help to play a part in that, which was, I think, what you're describing is taking them back to see what what the environment was like, was helping them, hey, here's, this could be you and you could be here. Sure. to you for
2: that. And it comes full circle because when I joined ICS, right? So they recruited me from my previous firm, Addison. Where Jim and I know each other, and they needed someone here local to open a Dallas branch from scratch. Dallas is a finicky market for a lot of things. It's it's finicky with real estate. It's finicky with with staffing. It's finicky with tech. It's a it's a finicky place. So they wanted someone local and went through a bunch of interviews and eventually they took a shot on me. They took a chance. And I say it like that because it was a very big risk for them. And I think back to that candidate's experience. And I think back to my own where when I came into ICS, I was the first director that was hired externally, right? From the company, our other directors, our other four had been promoted from other offices. I was also the youngest director ever in the company. And I was also the only female director. So when I'm, evaluating this job opportunity of going, wow, I'm way younger than them. I am the only female. There's no other female in leadership. And I did question that a little bit, right? How much is that going to impact my success? Will I have a mentor, someone to lean on? So I I sympathize with that kid because he went through... same thought process that I did. We just made different decisions.
0: When you and I were talking in pre-production, it's interesting how there are some parallels between both your trajectory and and, and mine. And I referenced it as you're a trailblazer within your organization because of all of these firsts. And I want to loop back on a couple of things. One, a lot of leaders don't have the level of introspection or at least curiosity to look at somebody that walked out the door and didn't join the team to say, okay, what could have made this outcome different? So that takes a level of courage to do that. So hats off to you on that front, because a lot of leaders won't do it. Oh, it just didn't work out. And that's the easy answer. And that's the thing is that when you look at any number of things, people have to be willing to ask the difficult question of themselves and of others to really make progress in any sort of direction. So I think that's what stood out about that particular experience that that you shared. And then when you spin that forward into how you've built your team and and what that looks like and the impact that it's had, that's part of that journey. But the other thing that I'm curious about is you've set the groundwork building a team with uh, diversity in all the different things that can mean. If you're advising other organizations who are looking at building a diverse team and not turning it into a check-the-box exercise, what advice do you have that has worked out really well in helping you take it beyond the -the check-the-box exercise? How have you recruited with intentionality and with outcomes in mind with that diversity focus?
2: You bring up the check the box mentality, right? Because uh, I was having this conversation with someone that's on our DE&I team internally the other day and just talking about how celebrating diverse holidays and posting on social media, things like that. That's not what sticks. It's not sticky. That's checking the box. It's not living it authentically? That's a great question. I I think part of it is starting at the very beginning. And I was reading this, I'm going to misquote this author, which is probably going to be bad. I want to say that it was a Simon Sinek book, but it could have been Daniel Pink. I'm going to have to go back and do some research after this. Two
1: great authors, by the
2: way. And there was, uh, it was an expanded edition of a, a book I've already read. I want to say Simon Sinek, but one of the things he added in the back, it was talking about subconscious bias and hiring. And when I read that and everything that he had talked about and he listed, et cetera, I realized that if you want to have diverse and inclusive hiring and bring that into your culture, it starts way before you even need to hire. It's a mentality, but it has to start at the beginning where I go, okay, we're going to grow this year right? We're going to grow in 2022. These are the people that we need to hire. This is what we need to accomplish. And that's where it starts because if you start in the wrong place, everything else will either not work or it will be inauthentic. It will just be checking the box and it's little things. It's looking at where do I get my candidate pool from? Where do I get them from? And challenging those traditional you know, methods and in, in place. And then it's looking at things like job descriptions. And my team is, if they ever watch this, they're going to laugh because I hate job descriptions. I hate them. hate them. Yes. I hate them. Did I say that I hate them? Anyway, I hate them. But if you look at a lot of job descriptions, there's subconscious bias built in. There are things, there are, are requirements, and there are also phrasing that weeds out women, that re you know, weeds out people of color, that weeds out people from other religions or cultures. it And we don't realize that because we're looking at it through a lens of our perspective. And we don't even realize that it could be perceived in a negative way when we think it's positive. So that's, to me, that's the advice I would give is start at the very beginning and challenge yourself to look at it while wearing someone else's shoes. And, and if you're not able to do that, if you're not able to step back And to Jim's point, what I do is look at it completely with fresh eyes, ask someone, there are so many groups out there, so many diverse groups for, for hiring, especially in tech, but in general, that will look at that and they'll give you advice and they'll say, you definitely should take this out because this is not a sell to most people or things like degrees as requirements. People don't realize that a degree, a bachelor's degree as a requirement is one of the things that to me eliminates a a really good amount of your candidate pool, whether you're hiring for tech or you're hiring for what I do. And a lot of people don't realize that. And I think the cons of requiring something like a bachelor's degree greatly outweigh the pros. So that would be my advice is start from the very, very beginning and really make an effort with the way you approach Looking for people hiring, etc. Don't wait until you already have a candidate in front of you and then try to check that box. It's way too late at that point.
0: Those are all really good tips. You mentioned something interesting in that answer that I, that I want to dig into a little bit because of course. And, and I forgot who got this on my radar, but they made a really interesting point about subconscious bias. So everybody has those. And whether and you're un, unaware of it, and then you have your conscious bias, which obviously, by definition, you're aware of. But I think one of the interesting things about both of those concepts is that we talk about these things and say, oh, we're aware we have it. And then we just completely keep acting the way that we normally would have acted. And that's a cop out. So I think the lesson when you're looking at all of these biases that you consciously have and even the subconscious ones that impact how you're feeling or responding to a scenario, I think it's important to take those in and examine in the moment, okay, why am I reacting this way? And then act in a way that's consistent with that authentic behavior or that authenticity that we want to put out in the world. Because I think a lot of times people just use this the subconscious bias explanation, hey, I'm reacting this way because of something. And I just keep on going the same direction that I was going. Just because you recognize that there's a bias, if you don't change your behavior as coming out of it, that doesn't excuse you from acting in the way that that you're acting.
1: I think, too, though, that one of the reasons that happens is because this is where oftentimes it's going to sound like a contradiction because what Kat was explaining when she was talking about the language and... and job descriptions or whatever, right? One That's an example of people trying to establish the culture fit. And right. when you talk about trying to establish the culture fit, one of the reasons that you want to do that is that you unconsciously are trying to maintain the homogeny and whatever that homogeny is. And if you maintain that homogeny, no one's going to call you out on your unconscious bias because the environment is really staying the way that you want it to stay. So Oftentimes right. what helps in developing that and pushing that, and Kat alluded to this, is that external organizations and why you want to have a more diverse team is actually that, and and you have to also have an environment where we are going to say to one another that, hey, these are some things that we want to be more aware of and be open to the corrective nature. So when yeah. you think about from an external standpoint, like the uh, intercultural development uh, inventory is, a, is an assessment that you can do. And it- it, and and again, what this will do is it actually shows everyone, to your point, Jim, has bias. And working through that and not actually saying, oh, okay, yeah, I have it. Go about our day. But we do. A great example is where this uh, shows up the most. I shouldn't say the most because I don't know that from a research standpoint. But oftentimes, because we're in a male-dominated society, what you were talking about, what Kat has experienced a lot of times, right, as... As being a female in, in the in the workforce, the different challenges that she has, even before, like she said, before I even have the conversation about my being gay, you have these issues just about being a female. The intentionality, one of my favorite words, is really what you have been, I think, driving about building those teams in a way that it is helping your, the this love of success that you're looking for.
2: Yeah. And I, I think about, to right, so we were all children once, we all grew up. And some of us are still children, Jim, but it's fine. (laughs) Think back to, to grade school and it, this is, it was real in our lives to each to a varying extent. And then it's depicted in most movies where you think back to like middle school, high school, you have cliques right? You have groups. We as humans are naturally drawn. We naturally gravitate to people that are like us. And that's where these things form. And it takes a conscious decision for a kid to leave their group, their natural group based on whatever they have in common and to seek out a different group and to learn from them and ask them questions and and stuff like that. And our brain is wired in such a way. It's so strange to me. Another way that I think about it. And I know this has happened to you guys. If you tell me it hasn't, I'm going to virtually find a way to slap you. But (laughs) so think back to the last time that you bought a new car, right? You bought a new car. What was it LB? What car was it?
1: That I bought Uh, Ford Escape.
2: Okay. So after you buy this Ford Escape and you're cruising around town, being cool LB, doing what you do, you probably noticed a hell of a lot more Ford Escape so cruising things. around town, doing Absolutely. what they do. And that, to me, that that's our brain. And so you talk subconscious versus conscience. I don't know. For It's just, it, this stuff gets me so excited, obviously, but you have to make a conscious effort to break away from that and you see it in children what happens to us as adults like we have to do that so i don't know it's just for for people out there that are like oh i'm not really like that you can't lie to us you fit the car scenario like everybody does and that's just an example i think of how our brains do that
0: when you're talking about the the dynamics of you know how that mental wiring exists that we self-select towards those who are similar that's from i think our the lizard brain part of ourselves that's a survival mechanism because naturally if you see anything different your primitive brain says oh that's different that means danger so i'm just gonna stay over here where it's all the same but it's interesting that we're still wired that way it's some sort of survival mechanism and I guess in certain circumstances, it'll be useful. We'll see how that evolves over time. With I want to bring this back to a point that you made about starting with the end goal and then starting from the very beginning. One of the things that's common within staffing in general, actually the world of work, everybody's talking about, hey, there's a talent shortage. We can't find any good people. All of the stuff that you've heard all the time. This whole talent shortage myth. And I honestly think... It's a complete myth. When you look at and you examine what you were talking about, how you want to approach the end goal to solving those talent uh, challenges, what's the relationship between what you were talking about and solving the, the talent shortage?
2: I honestly think it's simple. I think it's a willingness to change or a lack thereof, or maybe even just putting it as simply as the willingness to acknowledge change or the lack thereof. So what I mean by that is as we grow, right, as we all get older, everyone gets older. And as the market evolves, the workforce evolves, jobs evolve, right? Look how far we've come from the beginning of COVID and how much we have evolved in the way that we do work and the way that we communicate. So to me, it's that a lot of people I think are trying to hire in a new reality, but they're trying to do it with ways from their old reality. And to me that it's not going to work. It's going to be very difficult and painful. And so many things have changed, right? So many things have changed with just the, the workforce in general how we define senior or experienced, how much someone should be worth. Do we put a higher value on years of experience or output? The way that different generations view productivity and the things that are important to them, all of those things play a factor in the talent shortage or lack thereof, right? There's not a talent shortage It's just people are not finding back to what we just talked about. They're looking for these similarities. They're going, hey, this is my team now that I hired five years ago. I don't see anybody like that. There's no one to hire and they're not pivoting. So I'm with you on the myth. I agree a thousand percent.
0: People have to rethink or reexamine how they think about things that they want to solve because you can't take the same approach that has always happened and expect those results, but you you just hit on something. And then uh, I know that LB has a a couple of things that he wants to dig into. And what you mentioned was, how do you want to measure? What do we want to measure? And you mentioned output. And I lots onto that because that's that's an important conversation to, to have as well. Because there's a big segment of the population that wants to measure activity. And that's the wrong economy. There's a book that I read by, it's called the No BS Small Business Book. Casey Graham, the CEO of Gravy, actually wrote it. And he's got a chapter in there that talks about, are you in the activity economy or are you in the outcome economy? Basically, are, are you focused on results or are you focused on just task? And that's an important point too in how you evaluate who's sitting across from you from a hiring perspective. Just because they have X amount of years in a seat doesn't mean they're good. Just because they only have Y number of years in experience doesn't mean they're it's. You have to look at the outcomes that they've delivered in those positions and then evaluate that way. So I, I wanted to call that out because that's a mindset shift that a lot of companies need to have? What are you going to measure?
2: Obviously, I think about these things a lot. And you guys may say I'm a little bit ahead with this focus than the average person out there that hires. But even I struggle with that at a a very micro level. In our world, Jim, you know this from staffing and and recruiting, there is an activity or a metric for everything, right? When I first came into the business, that's what it was. It was activity. These are the things that you do This is the amount that it's expected from you and so on and so forth. And that's how your success was measured. Yeah. It's also measured in results and in our world and like revenue or GP, but I still struggle with this to this day. I had a conversation with an employee about it yesterday because I was raised in a world where the activity mattered and same thing in sports practice. Oh, how long did you practice for? Not what did you do or how did practice go? How long did you practice for, right? My entire life has been measured with focus on activity versus results or outcome. And so I personally still struggle with it. And if I'm struggling with it, then yeah, a lot of organizations are.
1: Yeah, I think because most com- most organizations don't help people to make the, tra- the translation or the conversion from the activity to the results, to the outcomes, one of my favorite phrases is that, and Jim has probably heard me say this a hundred times going back to our, our days together when we worked together, is that I don't care about credit, I care about outcome. Because it's that outcome that, that determines what my direct deposit is gonna look like. <laughs> That's the way that I used to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. So all the other stuff is merely a is a distraction. But the other part of it is though, is that when I think about what you have uh, shared with us today, Kat, it's been a lot and a lot to uh, a lot to unpack yeah. but all good stuff. You touched on this whole idea of authenticity and how what I appreciate about what you said is that when people so authenticity is one of one of these buzzwords that's going around right now when you talk about leadership. Let me let's just call it what it is. And what I appreciate about what you've said is that there's layers to that and I think that in different ways we have to measure that authenticity. And I think that you call that out in an exacting way, and in doing so, I think though that as you're being as uh, intentful—is that a word? So we just created one again today with a good <laughs> amount of with a good amount of intent behind what you're saying, and then drawing that out to the employee that you said, "Hey, when that person made the statement that they made, helped you to see that who you are is living into the culture, right? It's, it's helping to create that environment." of one that is going to be inviting to others. And as that environment continues to change, it helps you to be able to build those diverse teams that are going to accomplish these outcomes. Jim mentioned this earlier too, as well, is that one of the reasons that I started building diverse teams, what is it, 20 years now ago, is that I simply looked at our community. And what I felt like and what my concern was, we were losing opportunity, one, to serve the community, and two, that we were going to lose revenue. Because we had people that may come in and say, okay, this may be the one time I come in and experience this company because I don't see myself reflected. I don't see people who may be receptive. We always didn't have the right makeup. But I also built teams around people who could get along with other people as well. When we didn't have the attribute of that complete diversity panel that we needed in our community. What we still needed other people that would understand what it is to work together. So I think in what you have described, I feel like that's very similar in the way of how you are driving these outcomes with your diverse teams.
2: It's important to note. That it never, to me, it's never really solved and it's never really done. Like it's not a sprint with a finish line that you can cross and go, woo, that was great. Thank God I'm done with that. It's almost a marathon that never ends. And, And I think that's the, where a lot of people fall short and myself included, where I fall short at times is you fall back into that, check the box mentality, right? You fall back into that, okay, here's the effort, the activities, right? That I did, or I made towards this, but it has to really be a a living, breathing thing in us as leaders. If it's not in us as a leader, it it won't be in our team. And if it's not in our team, then it's not going to help attract the, the right folks that we want into the organization. And if it's not in our team, the customer's not gonna see it. They're not gonna feel it, right? the community, everyone. So it really is that trickle down effect. And when I put it like that, I'm like, wow, that's a lot of like pressure, but, but it is. And that's why leadership is just one of those things. It really is a journey. And I know a lot of people say that and it sounds so cliche, but it really is a journey. So I'm just here. I'm just
1: on it. Absolutely. So to to that end, What I would like to know is with all that you shared with us, what are some of the things that you would like to leave our audience with in terms of the KKO leadership (laughs) style, right? What are are some of those things that you think would be important or impactful for someone early in their career?
2: I'm just living proof that when you focus on some of these things, that you can have extraordinary outcomes and extraordinary results without all the, maybe the numbers and the effort that a lot of people think that it would take. And for instance, I'll give you an example. My branch, we have known for being historically lean and mean. We've never been the biggest branch. And honestly, that's never been our goal. Our goal has always to, has been to be the best, right? We don't want to be the biggest We just want to be the best at what we do. And we've been able to prove that time over time in the company with having highest GP growth, highest revenue growth, highest quota, right? Exceeding quota, all of these results while having one of the smallest teams in the company. And I think back to roughly like 2016, 2017, that team, I had never seen a more engaged team in my life where I basically had six, seven people around me that would run through walls for anyone in the group. And when we were number one branch, because of what we produced and we had six, seven people and we're beating out branches that have 15 to 20, it just, it gave them this energy, They realize like, if we have the right people and we have these diverse perspectives and we have an inclusive environment where everybody can be themselves and they can do whatever they need to do to find their own success, the results were crazy. And so now I'm at this point where I'm scaling that, right? And scaling is a whole other thing. It's a whole other beast, right? It has its own headaches. But it, it's a lot easier to scale when you can look back and you can say, yeah, we did that. We already did that. And it worked. It's still working. And those people are still here today. And they would still run through the brick wall.
0: Those right? are some phenomenal results. And, and you know, I, I usually raise the people's eyebrow like I'm doing right now whenever people say, okay. oh, diversity is just nothing. It, it doesn't really drive business results. in in When you say that to me, when you say that to LB, when we say that to Kat, we've actually built highly successful, diverse organizations that have been, if not best of breed, pretty damn close. I think Kat, when we're talking in pre-production, your team is somewhere in the top three out of all the different branches in, in ICS. Not to beat a dead horse. But this stuff works. Breaking news, hiring people different from yourself and building a team that way works when it comes to driving business results. So it's awesome. And don't let anybody else tell you that it doesn't work. I, I, I don't get where that mindset comes from.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for being a part of the show. I have to admit that as you were uh, sharing with us uh, about your teams and all of the successes you've been having, I, I did chuckle inside because your competitive nature actually was shining through. (laughs) So that's always very cool to see. But most importantly, I I, I want to thank you for the points that you shared with our our audience. I hope that everyone will tune in, find Cascading Leadership, the show, on all of your podcast platforms. And we are now actually growing. We are on TikTok and we are on YouTube. So we have a couple of different places that you can check us out we will give all of our lead information that we, as we normally do on LinkedIn. But uh, again, we, we thank you for uh, joining the show today and uh, we appreciate you being here.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook